Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive show where we interview an analyst on a single stock. And today we're talking with Ian Bizek on, con- oh, sorry, not Consorciora. That was the other Mexican company that was in my head. Pacifico Airports, which is, dare I say, one of the modiest businesses we've ever looked at on this show because it, and you'll see why, but there's uh, some clear competitive advantages and it's a difficult business to disrupt. But uh, what were your highlights from the interview? I think the highlight was going through how they make money and how it's such an easy business to run uh, once you have the toll on traffic through the airports. And then the various reasons why Pacific airports pack We'll say the ticker is PAC for the American one. If people get confused, I know it's harder to find the stock if you want to look them, you know, look it up. But they're in Guadalajara, they're in Tijuana, both those areas. Uh, Ian outlined why they will have, you know, should see traffic growth just because of various things within uh, with Tijuana, San Diego, and then with Guadalajara, the broader Mexican economy and the relationship with the government. It also surprised me. I would have thought for a business that is this durable and predictable, the valuation investors would have priced that in, but it doesn't seem to be too uh, too expensive of, an, of a valuation either. So uh, yeah. seemed pretty attractive all around, but we'll let the uh, we'll let Ian pitch it for himself here in a second. Do you want to talk about our sponsors first? Yeah. Let's talk about our sponsor for this week's show and through the rest of 2022. And that is Seven Investing. Use code money to get $100 off your annual subscription. If you're thinking of getting someone a Christmas gift that loves investing and loves investing research, this could be the perfect time to do it with our discounted code, $100 off your annual subscription. Uh, with 7investing, uh, as a member, you get seven research reports every month. And if you're listening to this, we're recording this before the start of December, but when you're listening to this, it will be during December. They will have given out their December recommendations. And when that comes out, you get seven set of research reports. They're about, I'd say they're not giant 20-page reports, but they're about 2,000 words each, really digestible. And then they also have more in-depth stuff if you want to go deeper within a certain company. So you get the broad overviews of a lot of companies that you might be interested in. And also, if something really piques your interest, okay, they have a 30-minute interview where they discuss the company you know, with all the advisors. You can talk directly with an advisor if you're really interested in something. And they track the records uh, versus the S&P 500 in real time. So use code money. Get $100 off our annual, uh, your annual subscription for life. That's a 25% discount. Ryan, should we hit the interview? Yeah. Without further ado, here's our discussion with Ian Bizet. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined uh, by first-time guest Ian Bizek. He, you may know him uh, from Twitter. It's at Ian Bizek, I believe, and he also has a Substack, Ian's Insider Corner. Uh, covers a lot of interesting stuff. Something we owned as well. That's kind of what caught my eye, and then uh, saw some other work, and and ultimately came down to this. And we're talking about uh, Pacifico Airports, which most 
of our listeners, I believe, are based in the U.S., so they may not have looked at an airport business model before. So why don't we start there? Um, what does Pacifico Airport, what does their business model look like? So like, how does an airport exactly make money? Because it doesn't, it doesn't feel that intuitive when I, when I first look at it. Sure. So there's two main pieces for how an airport is compensated. The first is aeronautical revenues, which is uh, contractual. The Mexican airports in particular have uh, an arrangement with the government that gave them the concessions that every five years they get an agreed upon rate. Um, like it's around, I believe, 10 or $12 per passenger, depending on the airport. Uh, they, and they can charge that to every airline that wants to use the airport. And then they get to raise the fee by X amount, usually linked to inflation every five years. Um, and as long as the airport owner uh, invests new capital in the airports in terms of like new runways and stuff, they get to raise prices. Um, so that's your contractual revenues. Every passenger that shows up at the airport gets paid. Uh, that's the fee on your ticket. Like when you see it says airport fees, that goes to the airport holder. Then the other part of uh, revenues is the non-aeronautical revenues. So this is anything else the airport can do to make money. So think uh, renting out spaces in the mall to sell food or to shops. Usually they'll charge rent and then maybe a, a portion of fees, like 5% of of revenues from a restaurant or whatever would go to the airport. You have parking. Uh, in the case of Pacifico, I believe they operate a hotel at one of the airports. There's, uh, they've been building like industrial like warehouses and stuff around the airports that they can rent out. Um, so yeah, you, you have advertising. As the airports get bigger, they've gotten better and better advertising contracts. And so the the main growth driver has been those non-aeronautical revenues and of making more money from every passenger who comes to the airport. Gotcha. And where, uh, just for anyone listening, are their airports located? I know, you know, there's some in Tijuana, but I don't think they have as much exposure in Mexico City as maybe some others, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, so the way it worked, Mexico used to own the federal government, owned the airports, and then in, I believe 2004, they privatized them. And so they were privatized into four groups. Uh, and they're based by geography. So Pacific, as you might guess, has mostly holdings on the west coast of Mexico. There's a north central one that has airports near Texas. And then there's the south group that has Cancun and a variety of airports in the south of Mexico. And then the fourth uh, group was Mexico City, but that one never listed stock to the public. So there's three that are publicly traded. Uh, Pacifico in particular, the flagship airport is Guadalajara, which is a city of five, just over five million people, I believe the second largest city and economic area in Mexico. So that attracts a lot of uh, just friends and family travel. Just good. It's like the second biggest city in the country. So it'd be the equivalent of owning like LA or Chicago in the US. Um, you have Tijuana, which is a big industrial airport on the border with San Diego, California. That's been growing uh, really quickly because San Diego only has one runway at the airport. And so Tijuana has been getting more and more flights. It's kind of an overflow airport for San Diego because San Diego is environmentalists have blocked the expansion of that airport. So Tijuana has been the biggest grower in their portfolio. And then you've got the two big tourist airports, which are Cabos and uh, Puerto Vallarta. Okay, and they have I, eight other that are smaller, but those are the four like, principal holders of the group. Makes sense. Uh, I forgot to ask this at the start, but maybe give a little bit of background for listeners who don't know who you are, what, how'd you kind of get into investing and then what sparked the interest for Pacifico airports? Why did, how did you come across this? 
Sure, yeah. So I started, uh, my interest in investing came from uh, in middle school. We had a, a stock picking contest for the whole state of Indiana where I was living for, at the time. And we bought a bunch of tech stocks and came in third in the state and received a cash prize. And so I said, oh, this is really easy. I'm going to make my money doing this. And then as I watched like all the stocks we bought, like Yahoo, like crashed the next year. I'm like, yeah, hey, maybe this isn't as easy as I thought. <laughs> that sparked my interest. And then uh, I opened a brokerage account the day I turned 18 and I managed my little college fund that money that I'd saved. Uh, traded that through the 2008 crisis, which was an adventure, uh, some good, some bad. But uh, that kind of got me going out of college. I went to work for a hedge fund here still in New York for three years. Um, that kind of taught me the nuts and bolts of how to do good financial analysis to look for companies. But I realized I didn't really want to live in New York forever. Um, and moved to South America for a year to learn Spanish and fell in love and have stayed there ever since. Nice. And what, uh, or I guess, when did you first come across Pacifico Airports? Yeah, so I first bought stock in the company in 2016, uh, right as Trump was getting elected. All of the Mexican stocks went down a lot. And so that ended up being a, a very good opportunity. A lot of uh, Mexican companies fell 20 or 30 percent in a couple of weeks uh, related to the Trump election. I was actually living in Mexico at the time and I was looking around and like, I would go to the mall, business was normal. It was just, it was just walking around. It's like nothing's really changed. And yet all the foreign investors were like pulling all their money out of Mexico. I'm like, I think there's an opportunity here. So that's when I got involved in Pacifico at first, but then I've been a shareholder for six years now and just kind of have uh, grown to understand the business more and really appreciated. I thought management did a great job running the company through 2020. When the pandemic brought the business entirely to a halt. I thought, they did a great job keeping things going. And so I've added to my position considerably since then. Interesting. And we're going to get back to the uh, Pacifico airport, but I just want, you know, for any, a lot of listeners, especially we, you know, have some European ones as well. They're very scared of investing in Latin America, South America, Mexico. What's, uh, I guess, what intrigues you about that? And what are, say, like, the big risks, I guess, any novice should watch out for as, as they're going, you know, investing in Mexico. Yeah, I think there's certainly a good reason based on history to be uh, skeptical of investing in Latin America. I'd say to pay close attention to how friendly countries are to business. You have some countries like Argentina and Brazil that have uh, burned investors over and over and have very poor governance, very weak rule of law. Uh, so I'd be I wouldn't say don't invest in those countries, but I'd say use a higher discount rate, be more skeptical. Uh, Mexico has been stable for a good 20 years now. Um, the central bank has been very responsible. Inflation has been among the lowest in Latin America. And they're very closely tied to the US now. You just had the reworked uh, USMCA free trade deal. You have a ostensibly left-wing president in Mexico now, but he's uh, built even closer ties to the U.S. I think just the Mexico-U.S. relationship is so close at this point that it's really hard to conceive of how how Mexico would fall the same way that like an Argentina would. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. All right, back to I'm going to call it PAC, uh, just as abbreviation. <laughs> PAC. What you know, you see one of these and you think, okay, the land advantage is just huge. I mean. Is that just giving them a great competitive advantage? And is there a way anyone can compete with them in the specific geographies like, say, a Guadalajara? I think that's what makes airports so interesting, not just Pacifico in 
particular, but any listed airport group is that they have natural monopolies. Um, because generally you only have one airport servicing a city unless it's a very large city. Uh, Mexico City is the only city in the country that has more than one airport. Um, and from what I understand, there's no real possibility of a second airport at Guadalajara or, or any of the other uh, second cities in Mexico anytime soon. Um, just the cost, the environmental problems with creating other airport, the traffic, it's just no one wants a new airport built in their backyard, right? And so it's very hard to... Uh, regulation around it uh yeah unless you're talking about like a sydney or new york or some world-class city you might get new airports there but uh, i see the risk there being very low so in effect i think you have a monopoly asset um yeah in a way it's like the railroads except with the railroads you have a lot more capex because you have to maintain thousands of miles of rail lines whereas with airports you have to maintain one large building so i see it as even more uh attractive wow, um, more, kind of more attractive version of railroads yeah, that uh, that should pique some investors. Uh, I don't know because people love the railroads, and I guess if it's railroads with less capital intensive, that seems highly attractive. Sorry, Ryan, you have the next question. Well, we're gonna, I mean, we're gonna... and also one more point on that: oh. you have passengers too. With railroads, it's cargo, and cargo is great, but with passengers, you get to sell them drinks and gifts and cosmetics right. and stuff every time they go through the airport. So there's a lot more added monetization opportunities to owning an airport versus a railway. And with and they are basically what just leasing out their real estate to retail shops. Am I getting that right? Is that kind of how they that the non aeronautical revenue? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, you'd be like being a mall owner, a office building owner, and that you you maintain the facility and then you rent it out to whoever wants it. And generally, you charge rent plus maybe depending on the property, you might charge a percentage of their their concessions or their sales. Right. Makes sense. Uh, what are, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think through the economics and from looking at the financials, it's a really high margin business. What are its actual costs? Yeah. yeah typically, uh, I believe when they were spun out of, or not spun out, when they were privatized, they were on 50% EBITDA margins. And over the years, they've gotten closer to 70% EBITDA margins because management has prioritized, uh, Growing the non-aeronautical revenues, which are higher, uh, higher margin. Uh, your biggest costs are kind of uh, upfront. Anytime you have to do new uh, capital expenditures, like the Guadalajara Airport, uh, they're spending five hundred billion dollars to build a, uh, an additional runway and terminal that will more than double its capacity. And so shareholders have to come up with five hundred million dollars upfront. They're allowed to reimburse that through higher fees, passenger use fees at the airport in the future, but there's still like, you have to deploy the capital and then you'll get it back in five or 10 years as capacity grows. So you've got your big upfront expenditures to expand your airports. Then day-to-day costs, you've got uh, like security, like you have to do all the passenger checkpoints, uh, electricity, uh, your uh, utilities, staff costs, regulations, lawyers people fall on your property you get sued whatever um you know just kind of the same stuff that being a landlord would entail okay what how much exposure does uh or do mexican airports have to leisure travel is it more than other areas it really depends that's a good question it really depends on the airport group there's three that are publicly traded in mexico the Southern Airport Group, uh, ticker ASR, that one owns primarily the Cancun airport. So that one's virtually all tourist travel, like for 
hardly anyone goes to Cancun for business <laughs> you go there for spring break so so that one's almost pure play tourism uh, the Centro Norte is airports along the border with Texas and so that's almost all tied to manufacturing like you'll be auto executives from Detroit coming to visit their plants uh, in Mexico so that one is much less tourist uh, I think I like about Pacifico is it's got the mix of the industrial and the tourists. Like the Tijuana is a very industrial airport. It's all about business and uh, integration with uh, San Diego now. But then you've got like Cabos and Puerto Vallarta, which has just been huge tourist draws. Like in particular, Cabos traffic has grown more than 30% since the pandemic started. Mexico was one of the first countries to reopen. Actually, they only shut down for three months during the pandemic. So a lot of people started. Uh, instead of going to other places in the Caribbean, they went to Mexico. Uh, just to give you an overall number, prior to the pandemic, it was 45 million um, international tourist arrivals in Mexico a year would be the size of the market. And then it looks like we're going to be about 20% bigger than that next year going forward. So certainly the largest tourist destination that's Spanish speaking in the world. Gotcha. And what have you seen any benefits in the numbers from, say, flexible work, work from home? Because I know there's a big, you know, uh, maybe it's a narrative or a lot of stories out there about, you know, U.S. residents and other people around the world moving, you know, for some time of the year into cheaper countries. Um, well, what? Well, Brett went. I to, did actually do this. Yeah. Brett I went to Mexico that. for so a couple I, there, months. There is a personal example of uh, I'm helping the airport traffic uh, <laughs> through the work from home. So have they talked about this, I guess? Uh, and are they seeing any, you know, benefits that could be, you know, maybe a decade long uh, tailwind? Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, so far, the biggest uh, improvements, Pacific Coast traffic is running about 25% of where it was in 2019, so well ahead of uh, pre-pandemic levels. But the biggest increases have been at the beach airports, like uh, Cabos in particular. And so I think... So maybe people are pretending to work from home. Uh, yeah, well. I think you'd have to ask people if, that are going to Cabos if they're spending all day at the beach or if they're actually getting some work done from their Airbnb or not. Uh, that's right. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter for tech. They make money either way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it helps. I mean, on the other hand, uh, if people can do more video calls instead of going to visit places in person, that will hurt business to some extent. So there's it's probably offsetting. So somewhere like Guadalajara has a lot of industry, and if people don't go and visit their plants in Mexico as much, that would counteract some benefits from digital nomads or whatnot. Would if if we went into, or I don't know if we're already, I, I don't know how it's characterized, but if we were in a recession, would Pacifico Airport see or pack, let's call it, uh, would would they be hurt by it, or are they somewhat insulated? Uh, I think they would a little bit, but they were publicly traded in two thousand eight through that financial crisis, and traffic was only down mildly and fully recovered by two thousand ten. Wow. Historically, global travel has grown at two and a half times global GDP, and with a with a large portion of that being emerging markets. And so, I think you would need to see pretty steep negative GDP numbers to actually see outright declines. Keep in mind, the majority of actual like Mexicans just traveling around Mexico still take buses. Uh, like if you look at the Mexico City to Guadalajara, for example, you have a bus leaving every five minutes. That's an eight-hour bus ride, and it's like forty-five minutes in a plane. So it's like these people huh. should all be on planes. It's a huge tailwind uh, over the, call it the next twenty years. 
And I mean, it's, it's happened to some extent. You have discount airlines that have become significantly larger in Mexico, but I'd say we're in maybe the fourth inning of that transition. And that, that will offset a lot of, even if international travel takes a dip in a recession, just your continuing drive of the Mexican middle class emerging and saying, I don't want to ride buses for eight hours anymore. It's going to be helpful in offsetting that. How does PAC grow? Can they do anything, I guess, to grow? Or is, are they just sort of a... At the at the whim of like more traffic flowing through the airport. Yeah, so they meet with the Mexican government every five years to determine capital uh, expenditure planning for the next five years. Um, the Mexican government will give them uh, recommendations in terms of like from the Mexican tourist agency or whoever, and saying like this stuff. If you add these services at the airport, we'll we'll uh, reimburse you for them. So there's planning with the government in terms of. Uh, what they would find helpful. And then Pacifica can also plan its own, uh, like if they feel an industrial park at the airport would be profitable, they can go build that themselves. Um, they're building, like I said, they're doubling, more than doubling the size of the Guadalajara airport that they're spending $500 million on, which is quite large by their, their 7 billion market cap now. So, and I think was like 600 million of annual profits. So, Spending almost a year of profits on an airport enlargement, so pretty big uh, internal reinvestment there. Um, what else can they do? They've bought back a little bit of stock. They pay a large dividend. They aim to pay more than ninety percent of free cash flow as dividends. Uh, so, the yeah, that gets rid of uh, excess cash. Uh, they have bid on other airports. They picked up two concessions in Jamaica, which are not large in the great scheme of things, but it's a little bit additional growth gotcha. have they have they said anything about moving more internationally uh or uh, yeah i guess have they said anything about that yeah yeah so i actually talked to the cfo this summer um and he said that they've been involved in several bidding processes throughout latin america uh but they've tended to get outbid because they're conservative and some certain other airport are Operators have been willing to pay higher prices where they didn't see the math pencil out, but they continue bidding. I believe they're bidding in Barbados now for the airport there. So they, like you said, they're always always looking, but they 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 don't want to overpay. Gotcha. And what's their the most important thing here is the you know the take rate. I guess you might want to call it that uh, on the volume and the relationship with the government. I mean, how good is how strong is that relationship? Is there any risks there and are they also inflation protected? That just kind of came up, you know, when we're talking about the the price escalations. Yeah, um, I'd say the relationship is pretty good. There was some concern about this because in 2018, Mexico elected a left wing president, which had ended several decades of continual pro business rule, and the new president had. Uh, kind of made some decisions particularly related to energy in a couple of areas that concerned people and so there had been some uh, some nervousness in the analyst community if they were going to get good um good treatment on their next five-year deals but pacifico completed theirs in 2019 and it was just status quo uh and then with the pandemic the mexican government gave some sweeteners to the airports to, to kind of compensate them for lost revenues so relationship has been good i'd say if anything the take rate is 
probably at the high end of what makes sense. I spoke with the ex-CFO, one of the discount carriers in Mexico, and he said that their biggest problem with expanding is just that the airports are taking so much of the profit compared to the airlines. And when they set up new routes in like Central America or South America, they, it's much more favorable to the airline. But the airports are so well compensated uh, that it makes it more difficult to add new routes in, in Mexico, which is... Uh, bad news for the airline, good news, <laughs> good news for the airports. But uh, I would say the focus should be on growing the non-aeronautical revenue. So uh, more parking, more more shops, more advertising, more hotels, uh, that sort of stuff. Because I think I think if you charge too much for the airport, you're going to slow down growth pretty considerably in terms of how many new routes you get. This is probably one of the most profitable businesses. Oh, that- sorry, and I didn't oh. get your inflation. Oh, inflation, uh, yeah. I yeah, think it's, yeah, go ahead. They get contractually the Mexican inflation rate minus, I believe, 0.5% a year for added efficiency. Uh, so, so if CPI is like 6% in Mexico, they'll get a 5.5% increase to their rate. Uh, yeah, for that that is nice. It, it is probably one of the most profitable businesses I've ever looked at, but do you think there's any room for them to continue growing profitability or is it pro- – is you Mark, mentioned, you mentioned right, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned that uh, they're kind of on the high end. Do you think there's any chance that like margins will revert? Yeah. So up until the pandemic, they'd been operating in the high 60s, even at margin. And I believe one of their competitors hit 70 in 2019. And in my opinion, it seemed like the high end of what they're ever going to be able to achieve. I mean, so 70% even at margin, really, how much more upside can we expect? However, the, the airports did say they cut some expenses during the pandemic and they were able to renegotiate contracts and all. And one of their competitors was posted to the 72% margin uh, the last quarter. So it's possible they've managed to find another 100 or 200 basis points of upside. That's what I think just at this point. I mean, the, the assets are so well optimized as is, I would say, just focus on growing your top line. You have other publicly traded airports, you have one group out of Argentina and a couple of groups out of Europe and their EBITDA margins are in like the 50s. And so I'd say the assets are well optimized and just figure out where you can put more capital uh, to work with in the existing assets or or maybe buy more assets in the Caribbean or Latin America. Could, so is, I'm trying to think of it like them expanding their footprint airport wise. You, you mentioned the international strategy. Could they build their own or is that just kind of out of the question they have to acquire different airports um occasionally uh like mexico is uh, building a new airport in the mayan riviera that i really call it near tulum uh, and so uh in theory they could be bidding for that Although in this case the government decided to build it themselves uh so like if, if the government says we're opening up a new area for tourism and we're going to invest a lot of capital here, who wants to build the airport? That would be an opportunity. Um, aside from that, I mean, most cities already have an airport, so you just expand the one that's there instead of building an entirely new one. The biggest opportunity in the Mexican market is that Mexico City is tapped out. The main international airport was built for 40 million people, and it's now at about 45 million annually, meaning that it's over capacity. Uh, delays have been going up. Uh, like if you have any weather, it will get backed up all day because every slot is used, and so like any delay like turns into a big mess. Like, and so airlines don't want to add and can't add any more routes to Mexico City, and yet the overall demand for Mexico keeps going up and up. 
which means that the airlines are having to add routes in other airports just because simply there's no, you're just, <laughs> you can't add more Mexico City. And so this is particularly good news for Guadalajara because they're just turning it into a second hub. That's what kind of the CFO has said is if the Mexican government, the Mexican government doesn't want to build a new airport in Mexico City because they said the environmental uh, damage would be too great and the traffic, like they'd have to build huge new highways and everything. So they're just like, we're sticking with what we've got. And so that creates an opportunity to use the focus cities like Guadalajara as, as a second hub. And so the PAC is looking to take Guadalajara from 15 million passengers now to 40 million passengers in 2040, so their long-term wow. goal. And so, yeah, if they succeed on that, that, uh, that would uh, new, that'd add like 50% to the company's profitability base uh, just from that. What about the uh, the Tijuana San Diego uh, bridge? Now, I I've never uh, used the bridge, but it sounded it kind of sounds weird to anyone who hasn't been on it. So, is this just like a bridge from airport to airport that people can walk across? Am I getting that right? Yeah. So the Tijuana Airport is actually located right on the border with the U.S. Like if you look at it on the satellite map, the actual border of the property is like the wall between uh, Tijuana and San Diego. And so and San Diego's airport only has one runway and they've been blocked from building a second runway. And obviously that economic area, that metro area has grown a ton. And so one of the logical solutions has just been, well, we'll fly to Tijuana and then people can drive to into San Diego. Uh, but that used to be a pain in because uh, it'd be like an hour to cross the border with security and whatever. And so Pacifico got approval to build a bridge uh, that just goes out into a parking lot on the San Diego side of the airport. It's still run by Pacifico, but it is a parking lot. And then you can just order an Uber. Or you can park they have parking long term for passengers or order an Uber and just go straight into San Diego in like 20 minutes to downtown. So you land in Tijuana, get out take an Uber from San Diego and you never have to set foot in Mexico. How, how much has that helped uh, that their, their Tijuana airport grow? Yeah. So I think when they built that, the airport was like four, this is off memory, but like 4 million passengers a year. And now it's over 10 million passengers a year. It's been growing at like 30% a year compounded. Most of that's due to the bridge. Tijuana was the 11th busiest airport in all of Latin America last year, which is just crazy. Like it's ahead of like, uh capital it was ahead of Buenos Aires for example which we just wow why would that happen but (laughs) but, yeah Yeah, I saw I also saw that Argentina is really yeah I saw that Argentina is like terrible treats like their fees on airlines are really bad you probably know this better than me but maybe uh I don't know that's just another example of that but sorry did you uh did you have anything else to add on that before the next question uh no just yeah they've uh, Tijuana probably doesn't seem like a great asset on the face of it, and yet they've managed to do something pretty amazing with it. Uh, prior to the pandemic, I don't know if this will come back, but they had a director out from China to Tijuana, which was just incredible from my vantage point. Like, I wouldn't, th- I mean, prior to looking into this, I never would have imagined that Tijuana would be receiving cross continental, like cross ocean flights. But. Right. Yeah, that is surprising. Uh, what's their relationship with the US? Is that important at all? Um, because I know there's a lot of you know traffic coming from that country. Yeah, so the regulation is all on the airlines, not on the airport specifically. Uh, that said, uh, this is one risk uh, to the airports, more to the airlines. But uh, the FAA downgraded Mexico from status one to status two of uh, flight safety 
which limits the amount of new routes that Mexican airlines can uh, operate into the U.S. U.S. airlines can still open whatever new routes they want into Mexico, but the Mexican airline industry is uh, greatly slowed down from adding new frequencies into the U.S. until they get their uh, flight control back to Tier 1. And I don't understand why it's been delayed so long. Uh, something to do with the pandemic and the Mexican government not understanding how to clear up the situation. But that's been a, a limitation. Not a huge deal because it's more airlines like Southwest and Spirit that have been driving more growth to Mexico anyway. But, but something to watch. But no, Pacifico doesn't have to interact directly with the U.S. This sounds kind of like the uh, sort of an ideal business model. So what uh, what is the business trade at? What kind of multiple are investors putting on this? Yeah, so typically for airports, people value them on enterprise value to EBITDA uh, because um, the concessions could come in at a lot of different prices. Like if somebody is theoretically paid $5 billion for their concessions and somebody else paid $100 million, then you'd be like one group would be depreciating like $500 million a year. The other group would be depreciating like $5 million. You get me? So the earnings would be way different, even though it wouldn't matter to the people buying today. And so people usually use EBITDA to EBITDA for... For emerging market airports, you tend to see them in the 12 to 15 range, although Thailand has an airport group that's public that was over 20 prior to the pandemic. In developed markets, airports usually trade over 20 times uh, EBDD, but uh, uh, Pacific Coast at around 11 now. Uh, it's actually lower than it was trading prior to the pandemic because EBITDA has gone up 50% since 2019, and the stock price has not gone up 50% yet, although uh, we're working on it <laughs> the past past few months uh, but yeah so i think i think the longer term business because you trade closer to like 15 times EBITDA, EBITDA, which would be like 30 percent upside from here but then EBITDA historically is compounded like 15 percent a year so you get to add to your upside pretty quickly if you do want to look at it in an earnings basis i believe it's what 16 times now which i don't, I don't usually think about it in an earnings basis but it's not uh, it's not expensive on that metric uh, the other way to think about it would be through free cash flow. Uh, and then, like I said, they pay out basically all of the free cash flows dividend. And so it's been yielding, uh, it was yielding like 7 or 8% at one point by both the yields and the fives now, which is still a pretty attractive uh, for people that want growth and income and an investment. Pretty gotcha. attractive. Yeah, yeah definitely. What, uh, what are your thoughts on their capital allocation strategy? Um, is it a positive, negative that they're paying so much out as a dividend? How do you kind of look at it when valuing stock? Yeah, yeah, I think the, the management's been very responsible with their capital. Uh, Mexican companies have tended to have a reputation for just piling up cash so that management can uh, kind of engage in whatever sorts of other business. Like you have lots of Mexican holding companies that think they're Berkshire Hathaway, but end up assembling just collections of junk. Um, so I really appreciate that uh, instead of hoarding capital or making a lot of uh, investments into questionable infrastructure assets, they've just said, if we can't find something better to do with our uh, cash, we'll give it to you in dividends. Uh, like I said, I spoke with the CFO and I asked him at the end, just like what makes you different from other emerging market investments that you might look at. And he said that we strive to have like the highest dividend yield in Mexico and we maximize our free cash flow so that we can reward our shareholders. I think that's a, a very rare trait in emerging market businesses that the focus is on, on the shareholders and not on enriching management. Uh, 
Yeah, like I said, they've been very conservative in bidding for other airports. Uh, the deal they paid for the Jamaican airports was was attractive compared to other airport transactions we've seen. And I think I have confidence that if they do buy other airports, that they'll come at a reasonable price. Would you rather see them take some of that money and put it into buybacks right now? Given it sounds like they they're trading at maybe a cheaper multiple than they they have historically. Yeah, yeah, it's a little cheaper than it has been historically. I think, yeah, it was medians like 14, 15 over the past decade. Uh, yeah, I think buybacks would be fine. That said, I mean, as long as they keep dividending out all the cash, like the actual EV tends to, I mean, I, I think it works out well for shareholders either way, as long as the cash doesn't pile up. Because, like, as long as you keep paying out all the cash as dividends, then all of your equity is in the business, not in just stuff on the balance sheet. So uh, there had been some argument that they should take on more debt because uh, most airport groups are highly levered and they were less than one times levered uh, going into the pandemic. But that ended up being a, a very fortunate turn of events for them because some of the other airport groups had to raise capital at unattractive valuations in 2020. Um, I don't know, there's probably still going to be people saying they should use more debt to buy back stock or to buy more assets. But I think they're pretty content at one time just at EBITDA, uh, given the volatility of both Mexico and uh, the airline industry. Gotcha. All right. Last question here. This seems like a low risk investment, but we want to do a pre-mortem. How could an investment in PAC go poorly, say, over the next five, 10 years? Yeah. So I... Uh, Across the different airport groups, uh, that was one of my largest positions going into the pandemic. And so I, I'd never imagined that I would see my airport holdings down 70% in two weeks, uh, but that's what happened in March, 2020. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, yeah, Pacifica was trading at uh, like 140, 150, uh, 140, I think prior to the pandemic, and then it was 50, like two weeks later. Uh, oh, geez, uh, yeah. Was, and Centro Norte was at 65 and then it bottomed at 19, like two weeks later. Uh, so I think that was quite the stress test in terms of uh, whether these, uh, how these would hold up. I mean, that's, re- that's really like you had no revenues for three months and then you had very marginal revenues for the next year, year and a half before things really got going again. Uh, but yeah, obviously anything that, uh, any sort of terrorism or war or anything that would bring traffic to a halt is the biggest problem. Airlines going bust might seem like a big risk, but we actually, we game planned that one out in Mexico as well, or we ran that scenario because Mexicana was the second largest airline. It failed in 2010. Uh, Pacifico lost less than a month of revenues from failure to collect. So it's, I mean, any you can lose a month, no one cares. And within 18 months, all of that traffic was replaced by discount airlines. And so it was uh, same. Uh, same same amount of business, different uh, p- different pictures on the tails of the airplanes. But so that was fine. Uh, anything that permanently ruined re- relations between the U.S. and Mexico, I'd say that one's been stress tested as well because we had President Trump and he was saying some very nasty things about Mexico for a while. And yet uh, there's more American tourists in Mexico now than ever. Uh, but yeah. I mean, you never know. Um, Currency. Sort of, Usually, people complain about currency. You guys haven't asked about currency at all yet, uh, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Well, we know we're in. Yeah, we are. We are Mexican stock. Uh, the dividend kind of helps there. The div- Yeah, the dividend does help. Yeah. Yeah, and then 
And the the thing with currency with an airline is that with an airport is that if the value of the Mexican peso goes down, you'll get more tourists and travelers who come to take advantage of the cheaper country. So like, you may have a year where you you make much less profit than normal due to bad currency translation, but ultimately a cheaper Mexican peso drives more traffic. So I see that as much less of a risk to an airport than to most other uh, Mexican enterprises. Uh, if oil, it looked like for a few weeks there in March of this year, oil was going crazy. I mean, if jet fuel is like $10 a gallon, that's not good for airports. Uh, you'd rather own the airport than the airline, but it's still bad news. Like if, if oil becomes, uh, crazy expensive, mm, yeah, um, that's right. trickles through to them. Do you think carbon, uh, if you have some sort of carbon tax or like people just say airlines are bad because of their environmental damage, I, I I'm just throwing out like low low probability but things that could really hurt the thesis uh but yeah that's the main stuff that would concern me as a journalist right i think that's all the questions we have it's it's going to the i think the top of my watch list um and it's traded on american exchanges if i'm not mistaken right? yeah how, uh, i guess we should just reference uh as i'm looking today market cap eight billion dollars uh in u.s dollars so this isn't a tiny company by any means because i know a lot of people get worried about that when investing in emerging markets yeah dual listed with the new york stock exchange uh, and they have investor presentations in english they report financials in english in dollars uh, so. Right. so yeah i mean it's also listed in mexico but there's plenty of volume on the u.s side it's owned in like the mexico etf and a variety of other latin etfs so there's uh, passive money and institutional money involved uh, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it uh, for people that want to keep up with you or, or see more of your work, see any other stocks that you look at. What's the best place to do that? Yeah. So I'm active on Twitter. Uh, I got quite a few followers there. IRBZEK, I-R-B-E-Z-E-K. Uh, and then on Seeking Alpha or on my Substack, Ian's Insider Corner, same name, same uh, same articles at both places, but whichever platform you prefer, I'm at both of them. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter all day. So if you got any questions on Pacifico or any anything else I've written about, just hit me up there and I'll be in touch. All right, we'll be uh, we'll be sure to link to those in the show notes as well. But that is going to do it. Uh, so we want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Ian, for coming on the show, and we will see you all next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about 7investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is 7investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we from years of working in the investing industry, it was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that 
fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend loving, you know, paycheck cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower risk dividend paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and as and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. And let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of 7investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And, you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at 7investing.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned... So seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas? Like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh, whether advisors like certain ones more? That's the most common question we've gotten actually since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? And so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. You know, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. 
The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell, which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a, you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get a hundred dollars off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah. We do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett, uh, $3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the Chit Chat Money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the, the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code money. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.